Let's open our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Continuing in our series on marriage, remember in Sunday morning we're doing the the uh, theological aspect of this, and then on Sunday evenings, with the love and respect, the more practical and hands-on aspect of how do we live these things out in our lives. So once you get to Hebrews 13, you just keep it open there. We're going to get to that in just a moment. So pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Mindful of this great work that you have called us to, to men to love our wives as Christ loved the church, women to follow our husbands as the church follows Christ, to live these things out as a testimony to you and to your grace in our lives that we might be holy and help to prepare us for the things of heaven. Today, Heavenly Father, as we look at the world around us and how it understands these things, and as we dig into your word to see what you call us to, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, enliven our hearts, that we might live out the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When we were little, let's say eight years old, and girls still had cooties, Whatever a cootie was, they had them. You know, remember that. When, when we would see our close friends, boys, and we would see them talking to a girl, what would we say? Randy and Judy sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love. Second comes marriage. Then comes Randy pushing a baby carriage. Why is it that eight-year-olds know that? Okay, and the, it seems like the rest of society cannot get it right. But eight-year-olds, see, first comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes the baby. Uh, we seem to get it all jabberwobbied in today's society. And, and, and it, it came to such a, a clear picture for me while I was in Scotland and in Spain. And, and I, I just heard repeatedly, repeatedly, an ever-growing, and ever-increasing tide against marriage against marriage. Most people I met under 30 had no plans to marry. They had cohabitated uh, with, with someone either on a long or short-term period for, uh, on, on various several partners. They saw no benefit in having children with a spouse over against having them with simply a partner. And whenever I tried to interject simple classic biblical teaching, the fundamental things about marriage into our conversation, it was like I was speaking a foreign language, stuff that they had never heard before. I was trying to tell them about it, and they were going, where do you get these ideas? Where do you get this stuff? Hmm. It all came to a head. Well, I was having a conversation with a woman, and she had professed to me her um, a strong Roman Catholic faith and, and, and practiced it for years and years. And it came to me when she said, I don't need marriage. I don't need marriage. Now, this was a woman in her late 60s who had been uh, cohabitating with a man for about 15 years. And when the question came up the, from, from my buddy from New Zealand, he said, well, how long have you been married? She said, I don't need marriage. Now, those two things in my mind were incongruous. 
Here, here I have this professed and strong faith, but I don't need marriage. And it was at that moment that I kind of understood what the church was up against. The church sees marriage as inescapable and essential theological truth. And the world increasingly sees marriage as unnecessary and obsolete. Now, I'm going to quote off and on from a variety of things. I'm not always going to give you where I'm quoting from and, 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 and all those things. But we're going to look at how the world views marriage. And then we're going to look at why marriage is necessary from the things of God's word. So it was not too long ago, two women wrote an article for a major public publication. And it was uh, espousing the, the female view of marriage. And I would say these ladies were both under 30 as they wrote this. They explained that marriage once made sense for women because it was how women ensured their financial security, got the fathers of their children to stick around, and gained access to a host of legal rights. But now women could reject marriage and the whole culture of marriage in the wake of what they explained as a moral revolution. A moral revolution. Usually moral revolutions are what? Better. Their moral revolution was worse. Best illustrated in their views that said reserving sex for marriage is simply unthinkable to them and their peers. The idea that we would save ourselves for marriage was foolish. As they explained, we were brought up by, with lofty expectations by, uh, of, of an egalitarian adulthood and told by our helicopter parents and the media from the moment we exited the womb that we could be whatever we wanted to be. So you can imagine when we turned 25 that the thought of committing ourselves to another person for life would be nerve-wracking. An adult lifetime is just too long for any realistic commitment. With our life expectancy in the high 70s, the idea that we're meant to be together forever is just less than realistic. So while their generation of young women is, by their own admission, unrealistic in what they're looking for in a partner, they said, we want a soulmate. And they went on to explain a soulmate. But I'll just explain it like, we want a soulmate, okay? They were supposedly realistic when it came to calculating the value of marriage. They found it wanting. They want a soulmate, but they don't want marriage. They don't want the things that go with it. They don't want the things that help propagate it and keep it and sustain it. They just want the warm fuzzy of it. This pair of young women claim that the permanence of marriage seems naive and almost arrogant in today's world. Now, how arrogant of them to think that an institution and a function that has sustained society for thousands of years was now somehow irrelevant to society. The moral revolutions of the late 20th century brought about an obsession with personal autonomy, my personal freedoms. And it, these moral revolutions included things like no-fault divorce, the liberation of sex from marriage. Once it was no longer limited to married couples, marriage lost this bindingness uh, that was seen throughout history, uh, becoming more like a legal contract. Now, my contention is that uh, uh, probably in my lifetime, the United States will move to a more European view of the marriage ceremony, where you go to the courthouse and get married in the eyes of the state, if you want a religious ceremony, you can go and get one too. And it will move away from its religious roots. In the late 19th century, the United States Supreme Court spoke of marriage as a sacred obligation 
a holy estate that was the source of civilization itself. Think about that. Sacred obligation, holy estate, the source of civilization itself. By 1972, it had abandoned any such reference and instead said that marriage is an association of two individuals, each with a separate emotional and intellectual makeup. What was once a sacred obligation had become nothing more than a private contract between two people. 1970, about 78% of adults aged 20 to 54 were married and 90% of children were born within wedlock. 2008, only 57% of that age group is married and 60% of children are born in wedlock. That's 30% more that are born outside of wedlock. One study says few statistics in social science reveal such a massive shift in the way human beings live and organize their lives. We just put marriage to the side. But the move away from marriage continues, and the embrace of what is known as cohabitation, living together as an alternative to marriage, has accelerated over the last 30 years. Men and women who cohabitate have only a weak incentive to pull their resources and to put up with the inevitable emotional bumps that come from sharing a home and a bed. Now, now think about this for a moment. Marriage is, for those of us who are married, we, we like it, right? Everybody go like this. We like it. We love it. But are there bumps in the road? Yeah. Are there things that you think, you know, I love you, but I don't like you today? How many of you have said that? You don't, don't raise your hands. Okay. <laughs> You thought it. You thought it, okay? Couples choose to cohabitate rather than to marry precisely because they do not want to be bound by the public commitment which marriage represents. They, we're going to have a couple marriages here this month. They're going to stand right here. And they're going to admit and profess and confess and make a covenant before hundreds of people. And this is what they're going to say they're going to do. And everybody who attends those weddings are there so that they can hold them accountable to those promises. They're going to make covenants before people. But people who cohabitate can just kind of do that on the side and and slide away. And they're not faced with this public confession of what they intend to do. Furthermore, the stigma and shame associated with unmarried cohabitation, with having children out of wedlock, has largely evaporated over the last 30 or so years. Even though, even though, study after study shows that marriage is the unique context in which children flourish. It's the unique context in which children flourish. Can they do okay in other places? Yes. Will they flourish best between mom and dad in a lifelong relationship? Yes. All the studies point to that. Family scholar David Popano says, Few propositions have more empirical support in the social sciences than this one. Compared to all other family forms, families headed by the married biological parents are best for children. Imagine that. Where did we hear that first? In there. Contrast that with this statistic. Children of cohabitating parents are five times more likely to live in poverty, 22 times more likely to be incarcerated in their lifetimes. Get that again. Children of cohabitating parents are five times more likely to live in poverty, 22 times more likely to be incarcerated in their lifetimes. 
Why does this marriage mentality beget a loyalty when cohabitation does not? The difference is that marriage follows a public profession of what people are going to do. Public, legally recognized, where people swear to one another, promise to one another, covenant before one another to love, honor, and cherish until death do us part. Does it always work out? No. Why? Because of the hardness of our hearts. We'll see that in Scripture. Recent studies show that up to 40% of Americans believe marriage is obsolete. 40%. That's quite a bit. They believe marriage is obsolete. Cohabitation is increasingly the norm for American adults, not just before marriage, but instead of marriage. And what is worse is that the research from John Hopkins shows that Americans have the shortest cohabitating relationships of any wealthy country in the world. The shortest relationships of any country in the world. Now, I had a, I had a conversation with a, a man who was um, an Islamic man, and he had two wives. This was back in Wilmington. It was kind of on the quiet. He didn't really know. I was, I was helping out with a football team, and, and the star running back was his son. And, and I asked his son one day, I said, who's that over there? I said, oh, that's my dad and, and my mom. And I said, who's that lady? He said, that's his other wife. Just, just flat out like that. So I went and talked to him a little bit. And, and the, it was fascinating to get the impression of what he said. He said, in Islam, we have more than one wife at a time. In America, you just have only one at a time and keep changing. Okay? <laughs> like that, like, oh, man. Oh, that's a lot of truth in that one. A lot of truth. There is presently a large amount of research that shows a growing cultural recognition that the decline of marriage is detrimental to society. The decline of marriage is just bad for society. More and more that is being proved. More and more people are aware of that. People care less and less about it, though. The majority of Americans appear unwilling to do anything about it. Worse is that the next generation cares even less about it. There's one study that showed that in the population polled, 60% of high school seniors think that cohabitating before marriage is likely to lead to greater happiness in marriage, if they decide to marry. When study after study after study after study shows that the exact opposite is true. If you live together before you're married, you're twice as likely to divorce if you marry. A mountain of statistical evidence and research indicates cohabitation prior to marriage weakens marriage. It's just what they find again and again and again. It creates a mindset of temporariness. You live together and you think, oh, this is great. I can, I can exit any time I want. And then you move into marriage and it's that, that temporariness carries over into it. That you can leave whenever you want. It doesn't even change. If, you, if the cohabitation, cohabitating couple has children, the mindset does not change. It is the same. Now, there are, remember, that's the bell curve. That's that's what uh, Egrid says. It's the bell curve. This is where most people are. Are there outliers? There certainly are. There certainly are. The number of unmarried couples living together soared from 400,000 in 1960 to more than 6 million today. 80% of couples who live together will break up before or after marriage. 80%. Couples who marry after living together are 50% more likely to divorce than those who do not. I want to tell you that couples come and want to get married. 
And I ask, well, what's your, what are your addresses? And they tell me what their addresses are, and they, so often they're the same. Um, and I, I say, are you living together as a, as a married couple now? And they say, yeah. And I give them that statistic. I say, you realize that you are 50% more likely to divorce than if you lived apart. And across the board, the guy goes, hmm. And the girl turns white, just like she goes, and they said, well, no, this is the practice, right? This is like we're warming up. We're figuring out how this is going to be. I said, no, that's not the way it is. See, this is the secret that Oprah and the other secular gurus don't tell you, okay? You are more likely. You want to live together. It's not practice. This is not spring training for marriage, okay, to get better at it. This sets a tone, and it follows through into marriage. More likely to divorce because of that. And Penn State had a study that said, even one month's cohabitation decreases marital happiness. One month. Think about that. Oh, well, we're engaged. We've already bought the house. We'll just, we'll just live together. And, and why live at other ends of the house? We'll just live as a married couple. For, for only, it'll only be a month. You're going to decrease your happiness in marriage because of that. Consistent, irrefutable mountain of research dating back to the 70s shows that marriage boosts every measure of well-being for women, for children, and for men. Everybody in that group will be healthier, happier, mentally happier, have a larger income, have a larger savings, have better employment, have better education. Uh, Generally in life, you will feel happier and do better by being married. In 2012, the New York Times, not not a conservative paper, but said marriage drives well-being and upward mobility while the absence of marriage diminishes it, contributing to the growing division between classes. Married people do better. Unmarried people do worse. Cohabitating people do worse. It's just what they found. Any smart and compassionate effort to alleviate poverty, increase the well-being of our communities, cannot ignore this fact. Each family is as much a public institution as it is a private, if not more so. Its strength and weaknesses are felt throughout each community in countless ways. Government expands as marriage declines. Just think about that. As marriage declines, Government gets bigger. Now, for those who, who go, well, I'm a limited government person, then you want a big marriage, okay? Think of Europe and how intrusive the, the socialist governments are in Europe. Spain, Portugal, Luxembourg, the Czech Republic, Hungary, all have divorce rates over 60%. Belgium's divorce rate is over 70 They've just stopped marrying. When I was in Scotland, uh, all the papers, all the documentations, just say partner. They don't say spouse or husband or wife. They just call each other partner because so few people marry anymore. So what are we going to do? Here we are, the church. What, what, it, what is it that we are to say to all this? Do we say, told you so, okay, because we had the right answer and you went and pitched it out the whole time. No, we can't say that because we don't do it perfectly. And as I said earlier, Jesus understands he refers back to Moses and said we allowed divorce we allowed these things because of the hardness of the human heart it is not God's intentions for people to divorce it is not God's intention to for them to live outside of marriage it is his intention that we do so any 
outside of that is because of our own sinfulness. Anything different than that is our own sinfulness. Scripture is clear. We need marriage. God created it. He defined it as the central institution for human society. If you stick to the way God intended it to be, you'll be happier, you'll be healthier, you'll be more financially stable. Rightly understood, marriage is essential even to the unmarried. You think, well, I've kind of tuned this out because I'm not married. No, no. Society is better because there's marriage. Again and again and again we, we show that. Is marriage perfect? No. Why? Because of our own sinfulness. Is, does it make all of society better? Yes. Yes. Study after study shows that. Why is it? Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's all, that's all we need to know. We're, I'm going to give you the context here in a second. Why let the marriage bed be undefiled? Everything else that tries to circumvent that, to try to come up with a new reason why it's better to do it this way or better to do it that way, is not blessed by the Lord. And in fact, the rest of that verse says what? Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's a nasty little term. We're going to look at that in just a minute. That is a nasty term. Let's look at the context of all this. Verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Love brothers in Christ. Love sisters in Christ. Love those within the church. He's talking to this crowd. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Love the brothers in Christ. Love strangers. Why? Some have entertained angels without knowing it. Love the brethren. Love strangers, verse 3. Love prisoners. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. And then he throws in the marriage. Let the marriage be held in honor. And then look at verse 5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with, with what you have. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love strangers. Love prisoners. Hold marriage in high honor. Don't be a slave to money. All those things go together. Here is how you are supposed to live in these areas as a believer. As a believer. Love the brothers. Love strangers. Love prisoners. Don't love money. Hold marriage in honor. God would be unloving if he did not judge those who demean and defile what he says is pure and right. We have seen in both the Old and the New Testaments the importance God places on marriage. And the reason it is held in such high esteem relative to God as the husband and Israel as the wife. Christ as the groom, the church as the bride. Government did not invent marriage. God did. God did. And Mark refers us back to Genesis chapter 2 where he says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Cleave. What Dan say? Leave, cleave, and weave. In that order. In that order. Marriage is for God's glory and our happiness. What God commands in the Bible is for the joy of all people. If you reject what God commands is for your joy, what are you not going to have? You're not going to have joy. Oh, but I'm happy. I'm, I was, I, I, I'm a non-believer and I'm happy in marriage. You're missing out the joy that is there. So he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Remember, 
the congregation that he's writing to is a congregation that's come out of Judaism and has come to Christ. And they're under persecution and they're really struggling with, with what to do. Do we go back to Judaism? Do we stay with Christ? I mean, that's how you get Christ as superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's all, all of these things he's held in, in the highest regard. So we know that because of that culture, they had a healthy marriage culture as well. And the marriage and the divorce rate in the first century is very, very low, very different than it is today. But nevertheless, in that time, there were those who wanted to disrupt the marriage culture and reduce marriage to something else. So you had a, a rabbinical school who said, well, you know, Jewish men can divorce their wives for any reason they want. Burn breakfast. So you let yourself go. You're out. Okay, any reason they wanted. And, and, and it could be as, as trivial as those things. It was their right. And Jesus sees this as, a, as a, an attack on the, the, the culture of marriage and the sanctity of it and, and, and the reflection of what it is. Think about our own culture. What is there that helps us stay married? Think about that. You might find that in this room, but go out in the culture. What's out there that's helping you stay married? That says, your marriage, I know it's tough, but it is good, and you should stay there, and you should work it out. And, 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 and you know, Christ gives us these, these options, these, these, these um, reasons that you can divorce. But, but in general, I'm not happy is not a reason to divorce. And the Lord says it very clearly. It is not a reason. The law doesn't really help us. The people we hold up as role models often do not help us. Certainly the role models in the entertainment industry, certainly what we see in, in movies and television. Um, I, I did a little, just a quick review. Um, marriage is really not portrayed very well on TV. This is not. This is not. Well, the audience of this letter was surrounded by a culture that was a lot like ours. Almost anything went in that culture. Understand, even in the Roman culture of the first century, now marriage was held in honor in the sense that the heir of the fortune and the name came from the marriage. But the man could go and do anything else he wanted. If he was a senator, let's just say a senator, he could be married and his fortune and name would come through the son. Um, but if he wanted a concubine or two or 20, he could have that. If he had a a companion with him who was 11 he could do that okay but marriage was going to produce an heir but he could do pretty much anything else he wanted. think think of the corinthians and the culture that that church had come out of i mean such paganism and and you could go up on at the temple of aphrodite and for a buck you could worship with a temple prostitute and paul even has to chastise them because in in what first corinthians 5 there's a man who's having a relationship with his stepmother and paul says what out he won't quit out get him out of the church the author of Hebrews is saying, don't get your ideas about purity from the culture. Get them from the Lord. And the Lord says what? Keep the marriage bed pure. Today you can keep the marriage bed pure before marriage by committing yourself to purity. And say, my life, my person belongs to Christ. Until my husband or my wife comes along. And then as we read in Corinthians, my body belongs to them. It is theirs. 
That's a glorious thing. That's the way it is supposed to be. There is joy in that. That's not being oppressive. and That's not saying, oh, you just got to do and don't. That's all the scripture is. No, this is where the joy is. Not here what the world says, but here in what scripture says and how scripture lays it out for us. Few young people have any idea of the consequences of what it does to men and women later years to go outside of the biblical model. You can honor the marriage bed before, by, before being married, and you can honor the marriage bed in marriage. And if you haven't done those things, there is forgiveness. The Lord is gracious to those who come to him and seek forgiveness for these things. Because the next phrase in Hebrews is dreadful. Let the marriage bed be held in honor, verse 4. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Your soul is too precious to put everything at risk. For God will judge the sexually immoral. I want you to understand clearly, he's not saying that these are unpardonable sins. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Some of you were adulterers, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were glorified. You were cleansed when you came to Christ. We all know men and women who have committed uh, adultery or fornication in some fashion. And, and through tears and repentance, they have come back to Christ or came to Christ. And there has been healing in their marriage. And those are great testimonies to the mercy of the Lord. But there are scars that stay. There are scars that stay. And they would say to young people, don't go there. Because the damage lingers on in your own hearts heed the warning the world's not going to help you in marriage so you have to decide am i going to be in sync with the word of god or with the world with the world so dearly beloved we are gathered here in sight of god in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in what holy matrimony It is an honorable state instituted by God, signifying to us the mystical union of Christ and his church. Those are words we're pretty much familiar with. That's that's not quite the ones that I use, but it's pretty close. That's out of the, the Book of Common Prayer. It's a necessary portrait of the love that unites Christ and his church. Marriage signifies this mystical or uncommon union. It points us to something that is far beyond what the, the couple that's going to stand here. It's far beyond them, but it is manifest in their godly relationship. Marriage is not respected in our culture so much. For many, the covenant of marriage has been discarded in, in favor of a contract of cohabitation. Obsession with personal freedom has produced, you know, successive generations who think the world is just a place where I can live out exactly what I want to live out. And marriage is a relic of the past and it's outdated and needs to be pitched out. But when marriage is entered into rightly, when the marriage vows are kept with purity, when the goods of marriage are enjoyed in their proper place, God is glorified. And when God is glorified, it is good. So we who are committing ourselves to this, we who take a stand and say, yeah, I'm not happy today and I'm not happy this week, but I love that person. I've committed myself to them until death do us part. We're countercultural in what we do. Oh, if you're not happy, 
go find happiness someplace else. No, I've committed myself here. This is where I am. We're standing against the tide of public opinion, against modern morality, against the erosion of faithfulness, especially to the Lord. Marriage is the source of great happiness, but it's not for our happiness alone. It is to make us holy. It is to make us holy before the Lord. And through the covenant of marriage, two Christians pledge to live together as to make each other holy before the Lord. As a testimony to the love of Christ. So live out your marriage, how? Like you preach the love story of Christ and his church. So let's pray. Lord, we have seen just a small glimpse of of how the world is, is viewing marriage, putting it aside degrading its value, not holding in his honor in honor as your word says. And, and that, then we come to the passage in Hebrews that said, only in this way is it undefiled. You have a plan. Uh, we fail in that plan, Lord. Not, but you're, you're forgiving. When we repent and turn to you, you are forgiving. You are merciful. Lord, help us as a church and help the church as a whole to live these things out through the difficult times. That when two believers come and, and they are joined together, that, that it is that we might encourage holiness in one another, encourage faithfulness in one another, to demonstrate these things to the world. And no matter what the world says is the trend of the day or the trend of the decade or the trend of the century, Our trend is your word. Our trend is your intention for men and women in marriage. Lord, these are not easy things. It will take your Holy Spirit in our lives. It will take your grace and mercy as we love each other, as we forgive each other, as we work for the good of each other. Lord, help us commit ourselves to this. For those of us who are married, thinking about getting married, that we understand these things and hold to them. Lord, for those who may have have strayed or or, or sinned in some fashion in this, that their hearts would be broken and repent and and seek forgiveness and seek healing and, and, and wholeness. That you might be glorified in our marriages. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.